All right, so now we come to the last week of our excursus on Thanksgiving. Final week, and there's no doubt about that because Tuck will be teaching us next week, <laughs> so he can't give me another week. Um, so two weeks ago, we transitioned from considering the biblical perspective about Thanksgiving to considering more practically how do we be sure that now that we understand the importance of it, we're actually growing in gratitude. How do we make sure we're growing in that, putting that into practice? And today we'll conclude that consideration, um, continuing with some of those truths in which we need to be renewing our minds, as well as considering some kind of more practical things we can be doing. So let's just begin with a brief review of what we have considered over the past two weeks. I began by pointing out the pivotal role of mind renewal. Can anyone remind us what I mean by mind renewal? Yeah, Romans 12, 2 was a text I pointed out, yeah. And I explained that basically mind renewal is believing the truth, learning to think truth over lies rather than lies, um, replacing the lies we tend to think and believe with truth because there's a direct connection between what we're believing, what we're thinking, and what we do, what we feel. And we naturally come believing lies of all sorts, and we might um, even adopt certain truths sort of as a proposition of our theology, like what we would proclaim to believe, might say our confession, and yet not really live according to it, not even think or feel according to it. And so mind renewal is that process. And we talked about Romans 12, 2. Uh, there's also Ephesians 4, 23. It's another passage that says the same thing. But quite frankly, we don't even just have to go to those passages where Paul uses the phrase mind renewal because what he refers to there is essentially what he means throughout his letters when he refers to like living the Christian life by faith. To, to live or to grow by faith is to grow as we trust what God has revealed, as we yield to what he said is true. And that's essentially mind renewal. And so that idea that the way that we grow is, is by faith, by mind renewal, as we are identifying ways that we're believing lies and replacing those with truth, um, that's the foundation for transformation in this area. And so with that principle in mind, namely the foundational role of mind renewal in our transformation, and that includes in our, our growth in gratitude, with that principle in mind, we launched into identifying some of those essential truths that we've got to be believing if we're going to grow in gratitude. And then we considered what are the, the opposites, the lies that we're actually believing in practice when we are ungrateful. And we launched into the first one several, what's up there already, several weeks ago, I guess two weeks ago. Truth number one, every good thing comes from God. Now, this is a pretty obvious one, right? And not one that we would think we ever doubt or reject. And yet, in practice, we must be doubting it. We certainly aren't living according to it when we are ungrateful. And so we thought through what are some of those lies we're believing when we are ungrateful? What are we, what are the, what's like the contrary of this that we're actually believing? And I came up with four. 
when I come up with these, you're probably someone's wondering, where do you come up with these? It just comes from, like, taking my own heart to the mat over these things. Like, what am I believing in the moment, right? Just be, be thoughtful. I, I've got, if I'm ungrateful, I'm not believing this truth. What's going on there? Um, and, yeah, th- these are at least some of the ways, right? You could probably add some more from your own experience. Uh, but one was, it just happened. Attributing responsibility to impersonal causes such as natural processes. And my appeal to us with regard to this was to be attentive to God's involvement in every aspect of life. Not to settle for simply naturalistic explanations, right? We talked about all kinds of natural processes, the way God provides food and water, and we can explain all those types of things. But to remember that behind it all, God is the one who's actually providing those good things. We need to renew our minds by actively reminding ourselves of God's providential involvement in every area of life. And we need to more readily reach for God's working as the explanation for every good thing, rather than viewing that simply as like a pious afterthought, right? Like, okay, we have all these technical, formal, educated explanations for how things in God's world work. And then like, oh yeah, yeah, God does that. that that's cool. That's what we teach kindergartners. Um, and we believe that too, but, but really there's, there's kind of more sophisticated answers for us as, as adults. But no, the, the biggest, most profound explanation we can give, like we, and we talked about, I think it was two weeks ago, like why does the grass grow? Well, the most profound explanation you can give is God causes the grass to grow, right? It's also one of the simplest, but it's the most profound because it goes all the way back to the ultimate cause. And we need to kind of recover that and embrace that. A second one is that others are responsible attributing responsibility for the good things we enjoy to others. So we do this when we see some good thing that has come to us from God, but it's been mediated through someone else. Someone else has been God's means to bless us with that. And we thank that person, but we never go beyond that to thank God for providing that through that person. So yes, it's appropriate to thank people and others are responsible when they are God's means. And yet they aren't the only ones responsible, right? And so we have to remember that so we can actually thank the Lord for those things. A third one is I'm responsible, attributing responsibility to ourselves. The idea, though unstated, is I earned this. Therefore, why would I thank someone, right? This is something we can practically slide into. In the blasphemous words of Bart Simpson, When asked to say grace before a meal, dear God, we pay for all this ourselves, so thanks for nothing. But that's functionally how we often act, right? We don't thank the Lord because, well, practically, like I, I wouldn't even think to do that. I wouldn't think to thank the Lord because I'm the one who earned this. And the truth that we need to be fighting that lie is the truth of 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Any good thing, no matter how much work we put into it, no matter how much skill goes into it or preparation, ultimately all of that was sustained and made possible by God. And so all of that is irrelevant when it comes to God's responsibility in providing for us. So a third way we might functionally deny the truth that every good thing comes from God is by believing I'm responsible. And then a fourth way is believing I deserve better than this. So if like the last one says, hey, I'm responsible, why would I thank someone else? This one 
says, I'm not aware there's anything to be thankful for. <laughs> like, this is what I've got. This is below me. I deserve better. So there's no, no thanks to be given. The problem here is that we've forgotten that we deserve nothing except God's wrath. We don't deserve anything. We have no right to hold expectations. And it's at that that we have to keep reminding ourselves of, of which we've got to keep reminding ourselves, if we're going to be overflowing with gratitude. As the ever-quotable G.K. Chesterton said, Blessed is he who expecteth nothing, for he shall enjoy everything. Or, for our purposes, we might say, for he shall be thankful for everything. Right? If you expect nothing, you'll be thankful for everything. And so part of the problem is we expect more. We expect better. We believe, we, we believe we're entitled to something more than what we actually have. And so this first truth is what we need to fight all these lies. We need to remember that God is the source of all of those good things. Every good thing comes from God. And then last week, about halfway through, we turned to a second truth, and it'll be the last one we consider, just these two truths, that sort of rounds out the picture. If every good thing comes from God and we should give thanks for it, then that's great. And we could stop there. But actually, we're called to give thanks for everything. So that leaves a whole second set of things that's even harder to justify giving thanks for. And so the truth needed here is that everything that we don't deem good or naturally give thanks for also comes ultimately from God operating in all his goodness. And that's a critical piece, operating in all his goodness. We could say it this way to simplify that first part. Every hard thing comes ultimately from God operating in all his goodness. And so look, this one, like I said, complements the first one. It rounds it out. Every good thing is covered by truth number one, and everything we don't deem good is covered by truth two. And so we've covered everything that we will ever encounter in life. But why go here? Why not just be content to leave thanksgiving for the good things and focus on other virtues when it comes to the hard things? like trusting the Lord, like persevering. You know, why press into thanksgiving? It seems like we're pressing a bit too far here. That's, that seems like the wrong domain for thanksgiving. Thanksgiving probably should keep its own, own territory, and there are other virtues for those, those things. Well, two reasons, and really they're kind of the same reason, just approached from two different sides, the front door and the back door. One, one reason, the front door Scripture teaches that believers can and should give thanks to God even for the hard things. We looked at Ephesians 5.20 last week, real briefly. Paul says that the result of believers being filled by the Spirit is that we will give thanks to God always and for everything. And so the first reason, the front door, is that Scripture teaches believers can and should give thanks to God for the hard things, not just the good things. And if we're to give thanks to God for those hard things, then we have to ask, like, what is the truth? What is the truth that Paul expects us to be meditating upon that makes such a perspective even reasonable? 
And what's the truth, therefore, we've got to be meditating upon that makes such thanksgiving in the midst of hard things possible, such that it can be a reality for us. So that's reason one. And then reason two, we might consider like the back door. So the reason one, God commands it, right? Reason two, same basic idea, just coming at it from the other side, is that the truths that Scripture teaches, namely like this one here, truth two, lead us to the conclusion that thanking God for even hard things in our lives is appropriate. Appropriate in the sense that doing so is entirely consistent with reality, with these truths. So it's commanded, but then also, like it just makes sense, if this is true, then we actually have good grounds for thanking God for the hard things. And, and how is it that that makes good sense? Well, if every hard thing comes to us from God, ultimately, as he operates in his goodness, I keep emphasizing that, that's critical if we're to give thanks, then we have very good reason to thank him for every hard thing, for it is a manifestation of his goodness. It seems like a disguised manifestation, doesn't it? It initially seems that way. But by faith, if this is true, then it is nonetheless a manifestation of his loving goodness toward us. And this truth combines sort of two elements that I think are best kept together. I don't really want to separate them, but for the sake of breaking it down for the moment, analyzing it, I'm going to separate it out. So the first half of this is just the idea that God is sovereign over everything. And I introduced some adjectives there. Um, when we say God is sovereign over everything, that, that doesn't get to be quite as specific as Scripture gets. Um, I said we could say even God's exhaustively sovereign over everything or meticulously sovereign, meaning he's not just like a king who is sovereign over his domain. In other words, if he knew something was happening, he didn't like he could stop it. But God's sovereign in the sense that he's actually sort of ultimately behind and involved in everything that happens. He's ordered and ordained everything that happens. And that includes evil. So one passage I pointed us to was Ephesians 1.11. We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose and then focused here on this relative clause, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now there's a ton of passages we could go to. This is not, you know, a series on God's providence, so that would be a beneficial foundation for this. In many ways, I'm assuming uh, that you understand these things and applying them here. So that's the first half of it, right? God is meticulously, exhaustively sovereign over everything that happens. But then the other half of it is that God has purposed good. He's purposed for good, even the bad things that he sends into the lives of his children. And since we're saying he's purposed it for good, then it almost might be better to say something like the hard things, right? It sort of relativizes the badness of it at some level. And so just a few passages, all of which I hope you're intimately familiar, with which I hope you're intimately familiar. First, Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose come back and make a comment on this but it'll apply to this one as well so here's a second one that many people are familiar with genesis 50 20 so joseph speaking to his brothers at the very end of the book of genesis very end of that story after this is like the 
the, the narrative, the, the dialogue in which he's revealing who he is. They've seen him multiple times in their visits to Egypt, but they haven't known who he is. And now he actually shares with them that I'm your brother, the one you sold into slavery many years ago. And he says this to them, as for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me when you sold me into slavery, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So when you read that, recognize that it's not saying, it's not saying that God takes the hard things that happen and he makes something good out of them. That would be a comforting truth. It says actually, though, before that hard thing comes along, he already, he brought it for a purpose. See the difference? There's a difference between redeeming something that's bad, bringing something good out of it, and actually purposing something hard for good. And this says that even while Joseph was meandering out into the field with his coat of many colors, heading to his unweary demise, unweary demise, he, uh, God already had purposed. God had a plan. God knew there would be a famine and that his covenant people, the descendants of Abraham, through whom he had purposed to redeem the world, would be threatened by this famine, and he purposed to spare them from that. How? Well, through a long process that involves some hard things in Joseph's life, right? But God purposed that from the very beginning. So those are the two sides we have to hold together. God's exhaustively sovereign, but not just that, that everything he does, he's doing with good purposes in view. So what are the ways that we don't always believe this? When we, when we struggle to give thanks for a hard thing, what is it that we're actually believing rather than that God is ultimately guiding history, including this, for my good. I could only think of really one here, and it is this. Stick with me here, because it's not quite so straightforward how we believe this. Here's how I worded it in my notes here. This hard thing, this is what we're saying to ourselves, right? This hard thing in my life is obviously bad. This hard thing in my life is obviously bad. So sure, I need to trust the Lord in it. I need to trust the Lord in this hard thing, but surely he isn't behind it. So there's no reason to trust him for it. You guys trapped with me? If, if God's really not in any way kind of behind and orchestrating and, and bringing about that hard thing, then it makes sense to trust him in the hard thing because he's promised he'll care for us in that, right? But it's a little bit harder to trust him for the hard thing as though there was some purpose in it coming to us. It's only if God actually did orchestrate it for our good that we can trust him for it and therefore not just trust him for it, but even thank him for it. Isn't it, at least that this is what happens in my own heart, right? Like it's easier, much easier to see the good thing that comes from God. And you like often forget that God's behind that. <clears throat> it's much easier to quickly be reminded of. 
But it's almost like there's this shift in my mind where when there's something hard that comes about to, to remember, like, God's the one who ultimately determined that was for my good. But when I believe that truth, wow, that's encouraging, right? What, what power that gives to not only, well, first of all, say to endure the hard thing, but even to thank the Lord for it. So, let's take, take an example. Let's say you're laid off at work. Boss comes into the office and says, hey, you know, we're making some cuts. Your job's the one on the chopping block this week. So uh, you've got a couple more hours till the end of the day, so pack up your stuff, and uh, at 5 o'clock, you know, be done. And you're thinking, wow, like that's, that's hard. I've got a lot to think about now. So I know the Lord's going to sustain us. I know the Lord will provide us. He's pro- provide for us. He's promised all those things. But thanking him for that doesn't really enter our minds, does it? But if we can remember, wow, I don't know what God's doing here. But I do know because he said it's true, because he said it, that he not only knew what's going to happen, he's purposed this for my good. So I don't know what that good's going to be, Lord, but I'm going to thank you now by faith, just as I know I could thank you in 30 years as I look back and see what you actually did, right? But in faith, I'm going to thank you now because I know that by faith, that you're working that. So to state it kind of simply here, because this thing is hard, this is the lie we're telling ourselves, because this thing is hard, God hasn't purposed it for anything good. There can't be anything good he's intending to come through this. And therefore, although we trust him to sustain us through the trial, we don't consider thanking him for the trial. But now, contrary to this lie, we are so prone, the lie we're so prone to slip into believing, this truth leads us to say not just, God is in control so I can trust him, but even a bit more pointedly, God brought this into my life for good so I can thank him. And now hear me, when I, I made this caveat last time, but I'll repeat it again because it's important. Sometimes when we hear a reference to God's goodness in relation to his exhaustive sovereignty, even when that includes evil, we tend to think that all we mean by that is God's not in any way tainted in his holy character by the evil that he's ordained. You guys track with me? That's what it means for him to be good in that. But it, what I mean here is not just that he in his own character isn't tainted by it, so he remains sort of good in some sort of like abstract sense, but actually that he remains, that he is benevolent and loving. Goodness in that sense. Benevolent and loving in bringing that into our lives. My concern here isn't just to preserve God's character. Well, that's an important point. My, my concern here is to emphasize that his loving concern for you in it. That's primarily what I have in view when I speak of him being good in this. Now, it's one thing to affirm this truth in the abstract, but of course, as you know, it's entirely different to be actively believing this in the midst of the trial. But that's when we need it, right? We don't just need an abstract truth for our our theological system. We need truth in the midst of the hard thing. And the truth that God has purposed it for good isn't just an abstract truth that we hold on to uh, 
in some kind of abstract way, but something we must apply specifically and concretely to every hard thing that comes into our lives. And in terms of what are those good things that God purposes through hard things that should sustain us, that should encourage us? Well, I want to talk about two sides to this, this question of what good things does God intend through the hard things. On the one hand, there are certain of God's good purposes that are true of every hard thing in our lives. So you can know, regardless of what this particular hard thing is, regardless of who you are, what the time is, that God has this aim in view. We see this purpose in texts like Romans 5, 3 to 4. So grab your Bibles. I've intentionally not put this on the screen because I'm going to give you five passages that, if they aren't already, they should be your sustaining help in the midst of trials. These are three passages you should know immediately. When it comes to encouragement about God's good intentions in the midst of your trial, there's three here that you should go to immediately. They should be a little finger soiled on the edges of the pages because you turn here regularly because as the author of Ecclesiastes says, trouble comes to us as surely as the sparks fly up. And so if we're going to thank the Lord for hard things, these truths have got to be ever before us. So first, Romans 5, 3 to 4, Paul writes, And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. I know it doesn't say thank, but that's not far off, is it? If you can exult in tribulations, surely you can thank God for tribulations. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, a good thing, and perseverance brings about proven character, a second good thing, and proven character brings about hope, a third good thing. And this hope is ultimately linked back to verse 2, where he left off when I started reading. Through whom we have also obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. What does he mean, the hope of the glory of God? In what sense are we hoping for God's glory? Isn't it like his, God's glory is his? Well, no, he seems to actually say, as he actually states in Romans 8, that what comes at the end of God's salvation purposes for us, our own glorification, right? We actually partake in part in God's glory. We will be partakers in his glory. Through the fall, we lost his glory. Famous, well-known passage, Romans 3.23, right? We have all sinned and fall short. We're lacking God's glory. The glory with which he created us, according to Psalm 8. He crowned us with glory and honor, his creatures. But he, through redemption, purposes to restore that. So we have this hope of glory. It's not quite yet ours. It's coming, a glorification. And it says that actually this hope is sustained, it's nourished, it's built up, it's encouraged as we are transformed through trials. So that's one text that supports this idea, this this general truth that no matter what trial you're in, this is a good purpose God has for you in that. A second one is James 1, 2 to 4.
James 1, 2-4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect or mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So this text says that through trials, God brings about ultimately spiritual maturity in us, right? Another good purpose God has for every single hard thing that comes into your life. And then a third one. 1 Peter 1, 6 to 7. 1 Peter 1, 6 to 7. Peter writes, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, and with the way he writes this, he seems to assume it is necessary, though now for a little while, you have been distressed by various trials. So that, so there's, there's a purpose here. It's not hey, that's terrible, I'm not sure what the reason is, but let me give you some consolation in it. No, this is a purpose. Why have you been dis- distressed by various trials? Some, someone who is a purposing agent has a purpose behind it. And that purposing agent is God. So that, verse 7, the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If if these prospects about God's purposes for our trials don't give us grounds for thanking him, I think it's because we don't regard the, the proof of our faith as, as valuable as Peter says we should, right? Sometimes it's tempting to think, the proof of my faith, the genuineness of my faith, I'd prefer to be without trouble. But we need to look, learn to look at it this way, that it is more valuable than gold. If, if you buy gold and you expect that it's been refined to get all of the, the other things out of it, You want your gold jewelry to be like that? How much more should your faith be like that? And then even look beyond that to what will come at the appearing of Christ, at his second coming, praise and glory and honor. So all these texts teach us that for every believer, no matter the trial, no matter the circumstance, for every believer, we can be sure that any trial we endure, every hard thing is brought into our life by the good and loving hand of God to mature to grow our hope, to prove the genuineness of our faith. So we can embrace this purpose for every hard thing, right? I'm just trying to, it's one thing to say abstractly that every hard thing, God has a good purpose in it. I'm wanting to go where, where scripture will take us, as far as it will take us, and maybe putting our fingers, metaphorically speaking, on some of those good things in the hope that that will compel us to, to find it easier driven by these truths to thank the Lord for these things. And so this is one. This is the first half of it. God's good purpose for every trial. On the other hand, it's clear from Scripture that God often has 
God often has many other good plans for the hard things in our lives that we don't know and maybe never will know. Where do we see this? There's two, two narratives. I'm not going to go to specific passages. You're familiar with them. First, Job. Job went through some very hard things. And all the way to the end of his life, he never knew what the purpose was. What was he asked to do as God appeared and revealed himself to him at the end of the book? He was asked to trust God, who knows far more than he ever could, right? That's what he was asked to do. He wasn't given answers. He wasn't told what the particular good thing was. It was supposed to be enough for him, and it was enough for Job, to trust the Lord that he had good purposes in it. And so the truth we learn from that book is that we can trust the Lord even when we don't know what good end he is accomplishing through our trial. Now, granted, that's the other half, right? The first half is there are certain things that we can always know, but there's also another sense in which there's more than merely maturing us that God is usually intending through our trials. We'll never know that, but we can trust the Lord that he is working those things. It's a helpful corrective, I think, to the temptation to speculate about what he's doing. Do you ever notice how sometimes it's tempting to start trying to speculate about what God might be purposing through this trial? In some sense, though, God hasn't given us that info. And like with Job, God wants us to trust him without knowing that, not to try to fabricate some sort of idol we can trust in by this this hope. Maybe this is what God's doing, right? This would be worthwhile if it was true. Well, we don't have to, to, to kind of make something concrete out there that we're going to put our hope in. We're going to trust God that whatever it is, it's probably even better than what I could possibly imagine. And it's also probably a little too simplistic to think in terms of a single good end God has in view. When, when God's bringing a trial into your life, he, he likely doesn't just have you know, the, the maturation of your faith and one other good thing in view. God's likely working a hundred good things in your life and those around you through the hard thing you're enduring. A second figure, Joseph, the one we just were looking at. Joseph's spiritual maturation was not, we know from Scripture, the only good purpose God had. Right? So, Job, I mean, Joseph could have gone, if he had the New Testament, to any of those passages. He could have gone to those truths that we saw from Romans 5 and 1 Peter 1 and James 1 and said, the Lord is maturing my faith and that gives me reason to thank the Lord for this hard thing. But that's never even mentioned in the narrative, is it? What is mentioned is God's purpose to preserve his covenant through that. And Job, I mean, apparently Joseph does come to realize this at the end of his life because that's what he says. But Joseph... Uh, Joseph did learn at least that one additional purpose God had. The point is just he didn't know that until much later. He could not have known that when he was in the pit. And the pit was just the start of it, right? He could not have known that with anything that followed those things. And yet God was purposing that. And what matters is not that he know what good thing or what good things God's working, but that he trusts that God is working good. So in light of this, as we seek to take this truth that God brings hard things into our lives for our good, and as we seek to not just leave this as an abstract, heady truth, but something we can actually lay hold of by faith and actually be motivated by it 
to thank God for the hard thing, as we seek to do that, we need to maintain the balance of, just bringing these two sides together, A and B, we need to maintain the balance of laying hold of the specific good that we know God has purposed for us in the hard thing, namely maturing us. So I'm saying you need to know those three passages. Go to them. Lay hold of that. Find hope in the midst of that hard thing, knowing that you can be sure if you're a child of God, he is working that good for you through your trial. But also not to go beyond what God has said. He's working through every trial specifically and begin speculating, but be content to trust the Lord to know what that good is, to trust him to know what that good is. And for that knowledge that he knows the good, he's purposed the good to be good enough for us. I was reminded in all of this of the excellent and stirring testimony of George Mueller as he preached the funeral of his first wife. So his first wife, Mary, was married to her for 39 years. And when she died, he preached her funeral sermon. His text was Psalm 119.68. And the portion of it that he preached from reads, You are good and do good. You are good and do good. So this is his text, and he brings out of this three points as he applies them to this, this funeral. His first point was, the Lord was good and did good first in giving her to me. So as a wife, the Lord was good and did good in giving her to me. Secondly, the Lord was good and did good in so long leaving her to me. So all of those, those first two, right, out of three, can easily fit under truth number one. Every good thing comes from God. And if Mueller did not believe truth number two, his sermon would stop there, right? That's all we could say. So let's remember, let's reminisce about the good things God did in the past, and let's just take this as a hard hit. But he goes on to this third point. The Lord was good and did good in taking her from me. That's a harder thing to say, and yet, if truth number two is true, that's not a misguided thing to say. And this is a helpful illustration because it helps us to see the way that truth one covers some things, truth two takes us all the way to cover everything that we may endure. Not only did his wife's death come ultimately from God, but from God operating in all his goodness. And Mueller believed that. And so he could thank God for taking her, knowing that it was a manifestation of God's goodness toward him. But take note what tangible good God had in view in taking her is something Mueller never knew. I suppose he never knew, right? He probably could speculate, but what's interesting is, as far as I can tell from the sermon, he never, never sought to speculate. He just trusted the Lord with that. What a wonderful example, huh, of believing the Lord, knowing that he has a good purpose in view in the midst of that trial. So the second truth we need, if we're going to grow in thanksgiving, is the truth that everything that we don't deem good or naturally give thanks for also comes ultimately from God operating in all his goodness. And one of the chief ways we may practically deny this truth is thinking that because this is a hard thing, this is exempted from kind of what God providentially brings into my life. 
Yes, maybe I need to trust him in it, but surely he isn't behind it such that I can say he has a purpose in it, for it, such that I should thank him for it. And we must combat that by speaking this truth to ourselves. God has purposed this hard thing in my life for good. So I will, by faith, rejoice in the good he has purposed and thank him for this hard thing. Who knew that something as simple as thanksgiving would involve us in what seemed to be such difficult truths? And yet, this is the reality of giving thanks to God for everything in the midst of a fallen world, right? So, those are two very critical truths. If we are to grow in thanksgiving, we must roll those around in our mind again and again and again and make those at home in our thinking. But, that, that's all the mind renewal piece. And I'm hoping that through all of this, you've seen just that, the importance of that mind renewal piece, of identifying the lies we're believing when we're falling short of doing what God expects, and replacing those with truth. Now that compels, propels obedience. But there are also some very tangible ways we can grow in gratitude. And so I'm going to do this quickly, but growing in gratitude first by believing the truth, and then secondly by structuring our lives. These are the things we tend to go to first, and I think they're still good things to consider. So I'm going to keep it simple because of the time we have here. <clears throat> so one is simply, I've labeled here, schedule time. So if we are to thank the Lord for his blessings, we must be aware of them. We must take the time to think about the many ways the Lord has blessed us. His goodness toward us is so manifold that we barely plumb the depths of it, of its manifestations to us, in a matter of a couple minutes. And so we, we've got to take some time to think about what the Lord has done for us, to remember his many deeds of kindness toward us and thank him for it, praise him for it. But even here, there's a lie lurking in the shadows, ready to keep you from actually following through with this. And some of you by temperament are more prone to this lie and some less so. For those of you who are task-oriented and productivity-oriented, this one's probably very much a lie you're inclined to, to think that taking time, be it 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, out of your day to, to stop and recount what the Lord has done for you and to praise him for it, it's not worth the time. I've got a lot of other things to do. There are even a lot of good things that God says I need to be doing, right? Things that God says are things I ought to be doing. They're, they're glorifying to him. I don't have time to do that. And the truth is, the truth that we've got to combat that lie with is to go back to all of those things we learned about a biblical perspective of thanksgiving, right? The importance of thanksgiving in terms of God's overall purpose and his glory. Absolutely, it's, it's worthwhile it's a useful use of our time. And I'm saying that recognizing you guys are busy people. It's easy to think, well, that sounds like a nice thought for the little old lady, right? The widow who's sitting at home and has nothing else to do but to knit or whatever else she does. <laughs> I don't mean that to be mean towards anyone. I really don't. <laughs> I'm looking at your faces like, oh. No, I'm just saying, honestly, you guys are like in the midst of you're doing a whole lot, aren't you? 
you're in the midst of doing a whole lot, and you've got school, you've got children who require your attention all the time, you've got work, sometimes you've got school and work and children, and those things really do, like, you're just struggling for how you get it all done, right? But whatever it requires, whether it means reordering your life, cutting some things out, whether it means, yeah, whatever it requires, you've got to structure time, right? You're not going to walk away from here and say, okay, I'm going to grow in this if you don't schedule time for it. The obvious time to do this is during your scheduled time for focused, undistracted prayer. Scripture in numerous passages mention offering our petitions to God with thanksgiving, right? So it seems like that's an obvious place to mix it in. Hopefully you do have a, a focused, undistracted time for prayer on a daily basis, and weaving it into that time is very helpful. But you might also consider other times where you have your times occupied, but in somewhat of a mindless way. You might be a commute, right? If you have a commute, well, some of you like me are struggle exceedingly to multitask. Even thinking about something while driving can be, can be a lot. Or listening to an audiobook while driving can be a lot. Uh, but most of you aren't like that, <laughs> as my wife reminds me. When, when she's doing the dishes and I want to, she says, oh, you can go and read, read the Bible to us. And I'm like, oh, are you sure? You're doing the dishes, though. Will you be able to pay attention? She's like, trust me, I can do it. <laughs> so I know most of you are like that. You can't do that. So that could be a good time, right? But what that means is saying this is important. So what might I otherwise do? I might listen to the news on the radio. I might listen to an audio book, even a really good Christian book that I would want to be listening to, right? And yet, it may be better to turn that off and to use that time to think about the many ways the Lord's blessed you and to praise him for that. <clears throat> so that's one way we can structure our lives. And the second way is use a list. Use a list, basically, of prompts, of categories of your life that are things you should be thinking about to recognize God's many blessings. Our minds can often be pretty dull and sluggish, can't they? Pretty frail. You start thinking about something and you realize, wow, like how, how little I've actually thought about that. How much more there was to think about. When someone else comes along and kind of prompts you, what about this? What about that? What about that? Oh, yeah, I didn't even think about those things. So we can be helped by the use of prompts, like a list of common areas to guide you as you think through the many ways the Lord has blessed you. And you might start by just taking one point each day and spend just five minutes thinking about the ways the Lord has blessed you in that area and thanking him for them. So I hope you hear in that a very modest way to make progress in this. Think about five minutes a day. Many of you are probably already doing this. I don't want to act as though no one's doing it. But five minutes a day, whether it's in your commute, whether it's during your prayer time, just focused to say, I'm going to take like one area of my life and I'm going to think through what are all the ways the Lord's blessed me here. If you're someone who likes to write things out, then write them out. That's tremendous. If you don't like to do that, then just sit back and think about them and just think through. Yeah, that. Thank you, Lord, for that. And that. Yes, and thank you, Lord, for that. Five minutes. But that would be a good way to go about that. And good news. I've worked on such a list for us, for myself, and I'll share it with you. But the printer's down. I was going to have copies for all of you, and then the printer died on uh, Friday. So uh, I'll have that emailed out to you guys. 
But I know what happens to emails. And often having a printed version in the cover of your Bible might be easier. So I'll probably try to have some printed for us next week that I can bring here and maybe you guys can utilize that. But just some super practical, basic, simple ways to, to put this into practice. Um, but to make sure we actually make progress and don't get caught up and think about the truths we need, which we have to be doing, but then also some ways to make sure we actually go there. All right, questions? Thoughts? We don't have Jed here. <laughs> or Becky. <laughs> go ahead, Bobby. <laughs> I'll go in your stead. Yeah, it's good. Um, I guess I was thinking through kind of taking this and applying it to encourage others who are mourning okay. or going through trials. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's a tact there that yeah. is really hard with this truth, right? You yep. know, if someone has a diagnosis of cancer, your first response is, oh, thank, thank God for that, to them. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would look at you like you're crazy. Yeah. Um, how do you balance lamenting, mourning, yeah. true, something that truly is evil, and yeah, yeah. evil, but also bringing truths to bear in yeah. someone's lives with facts? Yeah. I sort of think of two sides to that, two pieces there. One is like, what's the appropriate place of lamentation in our life, right? Because obviously, there, and that goes, I'm change that one first. That goes back to sort of that caveat I gave last week about how I worded truth to that every good thing we don't deem good or naturally give thanks. On the one hand, I'm hedging against calling it like unmitigated bad, right? Because God purposes good through it. And that should, in some sense, temper our, the, the badness of it. And yet, on the other hand, these are things that were not true in the garden before the fall. And they will be done away with in, on the new earth. Like, they will not be there. They are things that God is opposed to and working against. So, like, that's important to realize. It's not as though this truth that God's sovereign over everything just abolishes any kind of distinction between good or evil. No, they are evil. And so there's an appropriate lamentation over them. And yet, sort of a more transcendent recognition that has to be held in tandem, that God is actually working through this thing he hates and is going to get rid of, but in the present fallen world, he's working through that to make me who he wants me to be. And so I think that's one piece. There's got to be an appropriate place for lamentation. And then the second piece is, in some ways, the ability to live out truth number two is one of the, the truest marks of Christian maturity. I mean, I really think that's like one of those things that just like as people grow and mature, you see various evidence of that matured in their life. The ability to really embrace this and live this out is just, there's got to be the serious faith there, right? Trusting the Lord with that, even when everything on the surface says this is not a good thing. That can't thank the Lord for this. And a lot of people aren't there. And so we want to lead them there. And just because they're in a trial doesn't mean that you, you completely ignore that. But when you're in the midst of a trial, it's often a hard time to learn these truths, Right? So we want to learn these truths before we go into a trial. Just generically speaking about this, there's a book that I'm thinking about this because in the, the author, when he wrote it, mentions basically in the introduction, many of you will pick up this book in the midst of a trial because you want some hope. And yet, I really wish you would have picked this up before the trial because you'd be more clearly thinking before you're in the midst of a hard trial. Um, and so I'd encourage you, you know, we're doing this now, but keep thinking about these things when... When the trials aren't severe, I'm saying, like, it's not as though it's, like, not a trial, yes, a trial. Like, we're all in some level in the midst of some, some trial, right? But there's clearly times where the trial is more extreme than other times. Um, and that book, which is a book I would recommend to you, 
is titled How Long, O Lord, by D.A. Carson. How Long, O Lord. I don't remember what the subtitle is. I'm like Meditations on Suffering and Evil, something like that. How Long, O Lord. If you've ever read D.A. Carson, though, he's entirely readable to anyone who really wants to read him, but it's not going to read like light little bedtime devotional reading. Um, he's, I mean, they're, they're hard truths, right? And so you're going to have to think through that, but I mean, if you, to work through the book. But So the other side is it's hard in that moment. So I would, I would probably, if that's not something that person's already leaning towards, maybe encourage them with that truth in the midst of that, but not really hammer that. There's a way to be totally frontal about that, right? Like, praise God for this. This is a good thing. God's working something good here. That wouldn't be appropriate, right? Because there's also the limitation piece. We don't want to lose that. It doesn't mean you can't slide it in, though. Hey, remember Romans 8 to 28. You know, the Lord purposes all things for good for those who love him. We don't know what that is. And this is a hard thing, but I just want to encourage you with that. And I'll be praying, Lord, help you to, to hope in him in the midst of this, trusting that that is true. See, like that's not, it's, it's a sensitive and appropriate to those trials. But yet keeping truth before them, we don't want to just because people won't like it, avoid truth altogether. But there's time, right? Particularly if they're friends. If you're showing up at the hospital to visit someone, there's, pro- probably, there's a longer-term relationship there, right? And so there'll be times later, coming months, when you can talk through those things. That doesn't have to be the moment to unload it all there. Anything you want to add to that? No? Go ahead, Joby. So I remember hearing some stories that the guys came over and were the same with their grandmother. Okay. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about a trying, evil thing in your life. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. 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 Isn't that beautiful? So sweet to see that worked out. Well, I'm going to end us there because we're a little bit over on time. Thank you for being patient while we wrapped that up. Um, and then, just so you aren't leaving here wondering what comes next, uh, next week, Tuck Boyer will be with us preaching. And then after that, Paul and Bobby will be leading us through Jerry Bridges' Respectable Sins. So you don't have to get it and read it, though that could be helpful, but at least come attentive and know that's going to be kind of the the sequence of things they're going to be working through. Something funny? (laughs) All right, let's pray. Lord, we do love you. And we thank you for these truths and for the privilege of being able to come together as a body And think about these things together, about what your word says and about how we need to apply it to our thinking and even to be able to glean from one another in terms of how we've tried to work the angles of this in our own life and uh, be able to just encourage one another in these things. Or there may even be some here who are in the midst of some very hard thing that maybe some around them know, maybe, maybe none of us know, and these, this is a hard time to hear some of these things. And Lord, I pray that you would just grant them grace to, to receive these things in measure, um, to, to take them, and just extra grace to process these things, clarity to see into your word, and not just like to, to be able to make do with this, but actually to lay hold of by faith onto those truths and find a renewed hope and encouragement in the midst of that trial. And I pray for all of us, Lord, that you would just help us, not just tomorrow, not just this week, but in coming years to keep coming back to these truths that we need, maybe not memorizing them just like they are, but just intuitively out of practice in doing this, 
that we might be more habitually thankful people um, because of what we've heard from your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.